Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. So, usually I host this show every week. I'm able to come right in here, turn the board on, and just go with the flow like I do. But last week, there was actually a power outage here at the station. It wasn't the only power outage in Nashville, Tennessee, or the greater Nashville area. But I came here, and I usually listen to the show before me as I'm driving in here. But last week, around this time, I could only hear the local Top 40 radio station bleeding into WRFN's radio feed. I get here, and lo and behold, not only is the power out, but two trees fell down. One of the trees actually fell on somebody else's car. I looked around and thought to myself, wow, this looks like the apocalypse. But I came in, you know, just in case, and I saw a wire down. Obviously, I did not touch it because it is very unwise, not to mention unsafe, to touch a power line that's down. So don't do it, kids. But I came in, couldn't even turn on the lights in here, and came to the conclusion that doing my radio show was a completely moot point. So... I called the radio station management. They were aware of the situation and they apologized to me for coming in and them not being able to notify everyone. And that's okay. But since then, the power has obviously been restored. If it hadn't been, I wouldn't be able to do my show this week. But the internet, unfortunately, is down. And I really rely on the internet. The internet to me is like having that right arm on a chair. You're so used to leaning on that right arm, and when it's not there, you just kind of lean over and fall over. I do have access to my 4G on my phone, so that's where I'm going to get a lot of my information today. It may be a little bit sloppy, and it may take me a while to look up some of the things that I meant to look up, but I got a couple of problems. One of them is not having the Wi-Fi that I usually have. Hopefully, that will be restored next week. The other problem I have is I have a lot of movies to review for you for this week. Many of them have been out in theaters for a little while. There are two that came out in theaters this past weekend of July 7th, or rather the week of July 3rd through July 7th, and I'm just getting to them right now. But rest assured, I will not have a shortage of things about which to discuss for the next couple of weeks, but... For this show, I have four new movies to review for you. Two of them are brand new. One of them came out on July 7th. The other one was literally released to theaters on July 4th. And interestingly enough, I went to see a matinee of this, or I tried to see a matinee of it at 1 o'clock in the afternoon on July 4th, and it was completely sold out. I'm going to explain more about that later. The other two movies are ones that have been out for the last couple of weeks, but I would probably be remiss if I did not review them for you right now. So I got a lot to discuss. Let's start from the top. The movie that came out on July 7th, that is the first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you, which is called Joyride. And this is the latest from director Adele Lim. And this is Adele Lim's first film that Adele has directed. So it's her feature film directorial debut. It's got a lot of uh, people behind the camera who are 
worth mentioning. One of them who co-wrote the screenplay, Teresa Sow, I hope I'm pronouncing her name right, actually co-wrote the script for Crazy Rich Asians, which came out back in 2018. And I still remember that film. I thought that was actually one of the best films of 2018. It was certainly a very good romantic comedy, and I enjoyed it very much. And plus the cast of the likes of Constance Wu, Michelle Yeoh, Aquafina. It was altogether a great ensemble cast. So Joyride features an ensemble cast of Asian and Asian-American actresses, many of whom I wasn't familiar with going in. The only one I knew of note was Stephanie Hsu, and I knew her because of her previous Oscar-nominated performance for Best Supporting Actor in the Academy Award-winning Everything Everywhere All at Once, a film that not only was nominated for Best Picture at this past Oscars, but it also won Best Picture, and I think deservedly so. But she co-stars in this film along with Ashley Park, Sherry Cola, and Sabrina Wu. And I've seen these actresses in other movies and TV shows before, but I'm not quite as familiar with them as I am with Stephanie Hsu. But the movie is about a woman who's uh, Chinese-American. Her name is Audrey Sullivan, and she is played by Ashley Park. And she lives in White Hills, Seattle, Washington. And she is an adoptee, um, and the, the people who adopted her were white parents. And she eventually becomes best friends with a woman by the name of Lolo Chen, who's played by Sherry Cola. Both of them are... Uh, Chinese or of Chinese descent, but unlike Audrey Sullivan, Lolo Chen actually immigrated to the United States with her Chinese parents. And Audrey Sullivan grows up to be a lawyer and Lola Chen becomes an aspiring artist. And she does have a bit of an immature streak, especially when you see what art she produces. But in any event, eventually... Audrey Sullivan, as an adoptee, makes it her mission to go to China to see if she can find her adoptive parents, and she brings Lolo Chen along with her. Along the way, she also meets up with Kat, who's played by Stephanie Hsu, who was Audrey's former college roommate, and she has grown up to be actually a famous Chinese actress. She's not particularly well-known in the United States, but when it comes to films that are made in China and are those romantic dramas that are serials, she has starred in her fair share, and she's making a great name for herself in China as such an actress. And they're also joined by Deadeye, who is Lolo's quirky cousin who's obsessed with K-pop. And Deadeye, whom I don't believe you know her real name, is played by Sabrina Wu. And the four of them come together and try to help Audrey find her adoptive mother. And there are a lot of funny moments in this film. A lot of them involve sort of uh, gross-out gags. And considering that two out of the seven producers of this film include Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg, 
it's probably not too surprising, especially when you consider their repertoire in front of and behind the camera. But a lot of the things that they, a lot of the on-screen gags that they have here, some of them are quite juvenile, others are quite clever, especially when they're trying to get to another part of China and they lost their passports and they try to convince officials that they're a K-pop group. So they actually get into this very elaborate and very creative music video where they adapt the song WAP. WAP. I'm not going to say what that is because this is a clean show, but it's the song by Cardi B featuring Megan the Stallion. I thought that part was funny, and there was actually one gag that happens at the end of the video, which is also very funny. But the point is that these four women work together incredibly well. They work together pretty well for the scenes which are comedic. And there are also some very touching dramatic scenes, especially when Audrey Sullivan finds out the identity of her birth mother, as well as the story behind why her birth mother gave her up for adoption. There's a lot of really good scenes in here. I think this movie is written incredibly well. And the four actresses, have amazing chemistry together. They do have one thing in common in the sense that they are of Chinese descent, but even more than that, they act in this film as if they've been lifelong friends or been closely associated with being lifelong friends. And there's a bit of a plot trend that happens with these kinds of comedies where best friends go out on a mission and then there's a bit of, there's a falling out in the fourth act. And we've seen that kind of thing happen before, and the the resolution to that actually works probably pretty well than the obligatory scene that happens when they fall out. But I think overall, this, this film, Joyride, is a delight to watch. It's one of my favorite films of the year so far, so in that respect, it should come as no surprise that Joyride gets my rating of a knockout. I think that the four actresses in, the, in this film, um, Ashley Park, Sherry Cola, Stephanie Hsu, and Sabrina Wu, work incredibly well together. I think their life stories are very believable. I love the way that this film ended and resolved itself. And while the funny scenes in this film were gut-bustingly hilarious in certain parts. It also had a bit of dramatic gravitas that gave the film a little bit more credibility than it might have otherwise deserved. So Joyride is a delight to watch, and after seeing it, I actually probably want to go to China to see some of these uh, places that these four ladies visited. I might not blend in as well as they do, but the fact that they actually make me want to go to China is a testament to how good this film is. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. 
The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Sound of Freedom, which has been released during the week of July 3rd through July 7th, 2023. But this is unique in the sense that it was released on July 4th. Now, there have been other films that have been released on the 4th of July, but very few of them have been released when the 4th of July fell on a Tuesday. A Thursday, maybe, but yeah, it's usually if the 4th of July falls on a Friday that it's considered the holiday weekend or considered officially the holiday weekend. But in any event, Sound of Freedom is a relatively low-budget film that took probably only about $15 million to make, and it probably pales in comparison with the other films you'd normally find at the multiplex, but it's a film with very good intentions. And the movie is directed by Alejandro Monteverde and stars Jim Caviezel, Academy Award winner Mira Sorvino, and Bill Camp. Jim Caviezel plays Tim Ballard, who is a former government agent who embarks on a mission to rescue children from sex traffickers in Colombia. And it is the film is produced by Eduardo Verastegui, who also plays a role in the film. And... Tim Ballard is a real person, and this film is based on a true story. And Tim Ballard is the founder of a nonprofit organization that is called Operation Underground Railroad. It's not exactly that Underground Railroad, but like the Underground Railroad in which Harry Tugman took part in the mid-1800s, it is a United States-based anti-sex trafficking nonprofit organization, and Tim Ballard founded it after he resigned from being a government agent. But as a government agent, it was his mission to track down missing children and s- rescue them from being sexually exploited. In this film, he quits his job with the U.S. Homeland Security Investigations to become a vigilante and embarks on a mission to rescue children from cartels and human traffickers in Latin America. It's a very noble cause, and the children that are focused on in this film are natives of Guatemala, and they are actually captured under the false pretenses that they are going into the entertainment industry to be child models. It's horrific to think of, but in the end, it is all too real because this thing probably happens thousands of times a year and maybe even hundreds of times a day. It's a film with very good intentions. The only thing is I did kind of feel like some of the imagery in the film was a little too on the nose. For example, There's one scene where the main girl whom Jim Caviezel's character is trying to rescue is in a hotel room and she is being propositioned by a pedophile. And the way that this pedophile is portrayed in the film was a little too unnecessarily evil. And he comes in visibly drunk and carrying a bottle of Jack Daniels. And I did actually kind of like the fact that the film held back on some of the imagery and left a lot to the imagination. But him being drunk and carrying a a bottle of what's reputed to be a very hard whiskey wasn't entirely necessary. You can get a guy who visibly looks over the age of 35, maybe has facial hair and or gray hairs, and see him trying to kiss a girl who's 
obviously under the age of 18 and possibly even under the age of 13. And that would be creepy enough. Having him come in drunk, I think, was a little uh, too much. And I also thought that some of the scenes between Jim Caviezel and the head of the child trafficking organization in the uh, U.S. Homeland Security, uh, in, in this case, it's a man by the name of Frost, who's played by a veteran character actor Kurt Fuller, was also seemed a little too staged. For example, it, it just seemed very cliche in a Hollywood kind of way to have the head of Homeland Security or whatever organization it would be tell the the hero of the film that he's being he's looking into this case way too much and he should just let the case go and move on because of cost. And I don't know if this actually happened in real life. It seems to me a lot like a dramatization. Also, you, you have Mira Sorvino playing Jim Caviezel's wife. And all she seems to do in this film is tell Jim Caviezel that what he's doing is right and noble. And that seems to be all she's doing. Now, I will grant you that this film has incredibly good intentions, and it's also very good to know that as of the date of this podcast, the movie hasn't even been out for a week, and already it's grossed $22 million on a $14.5 million budget. That's great, and I also really appreciate the fact that Angel Films, who's the independent distributor behind this film, is having a campaign to get people to pay for tickets for other people to see the film. I think that's great. I think it's noble. I just don't think that Sound of Freedom was as great a film as it could have been. I think it kind of slid a little bit more into the action part of the film. And plus, when the climax happens, when Jim Caviezel's character finds out the whereabouts of this main girl, whom we've been tracking since the beginning of the film, there was something strange that happened with the climax when Jim Caviezel gets into a fight with another person. And I'm not sure if this is the way that the movie was filmed or if there was something wrong with the projector, but the film kept cutting in and out between the scenes of them fighting and then the scene just blacks out and you just hear noise. And then it goes back to fighting and blacks out again. And I really hope there was something wrong with the projector as I was seeing this film because I didn't think it was a very good effect. It was very distracting and it kept me out of the film. I do commend and applaud the film Sound of Freedom for its message and for its obvious good intentions. I also think that it is a a cleverly disguised faith-based film. Uh, which I certainly appreciate. It's certainly unlike any other faith-based film that I've seen, but it's still not a great film. But I do applaud it for its intentions. I am actually very happy that it's made the amount of money that it has, and I hope it continues to make a good amount of money, if if only if it means that people are well aware of the modern-day slavery, especially when it involves sexual exploitation, regardless of whether it's children or not, these things aren't right. And it's a movie like this that will shed some light on this very bad problem that we're having in the world today. One of many problems, but sound of freedom itself, I think could have been a better film. I think Jim Caviezel acts very well in it. I also liked some of the supporting actors in this film, like Bill Camp, Kurt Fuller, 
and other such actors. But Sound of Freedom gets my rating of a checkout because I think that if it was about the subject of sex trafficking and slavery in the United States, it would have been, if it was executed correctly, uh, a great film. But unfortunately, it just kind of succumbed to some of these action movie cliches, especially when it involves a rogue former government agent. Granted, it is a lot better than some similar themed films starring Liam Neeson, particularly some that came out last year, but... I think if it had averted some of those cliches and actually dramatized some things, like, for example, the real-life Tim Ballard actually testifying before Congress about slavery as it exists in the world today, the fact that it's written in the text epilogue at the very end, as opposed to dramatized, was a missed opportunity. I still think that Sound of Freedom is a good film, It just could have been great if it had just trusted its narrative instincts a lot more. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. This is a film that premiered at this year's Cannes Film Festival on May 18th and was released nationwide to theaters on June 30th, 2023. If the station, excuse me, if the power hadn't gone out at this station, I would have reviewed this for you before the 4th of July, but I'm reviewing it for you right now, and it is a very auspicious film. It's not only the fifth film in the Indiana Jones series, but it is also the first and only Indiana Jones film that is not directed by Steven Spielberg. Instead, it's directed by James Mangold. And James Mangold has directed a number of films. Among his most notable have included uh, Copland, Girl Interrupted, Identity, Walk the Line, and Logan, the latter of which earned him a nomination for the Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay. And I believe that Logan is the only film that is based on a comic book series that has been nominated for that Academy Award. And this is um, James Mangold's first film since Ford versus Ferrari, which earned him uh, a nomination for Best Picture at the same Academy Awards. He didn't win, but he was still nominated. But he is a director who certainly knows what he's doing from a storytelling perspective. And even though Steven Spielberg did not direct this, it was still released by Amblin Entertainment, And it was produced by Steven Spielberg's contemporaries, Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall. And John Williams came back to do the music for this film. And it is the first Indiana Jones film that is released by 20th Century Fox through uh, Walt Disney Pictures. Although Lucasfilm also uh, served as a production company for this film as well. But Steven Spielberg and George Lucas serve as executive producers for this film. And plans for an Indiana Jones uh, fifth film actually date back to the 
late 1970s. And back then, Lucas and Spielberg negotiated with Paramount for four sequels. Yeah, four sequels even way back then to Raiders of the Lost Ark. And of course, there were two sequels to Raiders of the Lost Ark in the 1980s, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, both of which were box office hits. And some of them were critical favorites. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade is probably the best sequel to Raiders of the Lost Ark. It doesn't exceed Raiders of the Lost Ark, but it's still a very noteworthy sequel as well. And the other sequels didn't quite live up to Raiders of the Last Ark. And Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, while not as bad or as inauspicious as Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, is still not as great as Raiders of the Lost Ark or The Last Crusade. But it still has its um, moments. However, this has a bit of a liability in the sense that its production budget is $295 million, not including marketing costs, making it the most expensive film in the Indiana Jones film series, in addition to being one of the most expensive films ever made. So there's a big risk in that. And as you're watching the film, you're kind of wondering, well, where did all this money go? And that's a very good question. And it probably went to the scene that happens in 1994, excuse me, 1944, where Nazis capture Indiana Jones, who's in his 30s, and is played by Harrison Ford. But you can see that there is a lot of CGI that made Harrison Ford look like he's in his late 30s and early 40s. It's very good CGI, but you could tell that it is uh, certainly a lot of um, very expensive computer imagery to make him look that way. But anyway, the film does take place in 1944, presumably after the events of The Last Crusade, where Nazis capture, capture Indiana Jones and Oxford archaeologist Basil Shaw, who's played by Toby Jones, and both of them are trying to retrieve the Lance of Longinus at a castle in the French Alps. But there is an astrophysicist by the name of Jürgen Voller, who is played by a well-known uh, German actor by the name of Mads Mikkelsen, who is previously in the last Harry Potter film, which is, um, well, anyway... He was in, um, he, he's definitely a familiar face and he does play a very good villain. But anyway, the astrophysicist informs his superiors that the Lance is fake, but he has found half of Archimedes dial, which is an anti kythera mechanism built by the ancient Syracusan mathematician Archimedes that, excuse me by the ancient Syracusan mathematician Archimedes that reveals fissures in time, allowing for possible time travel. And oddly enough, the introduction to time travel in this film is kind of out of left field. And Indiana Jones wants to find the, the dial of Archimedes to preserve it and put it in a museum for historical purposes. And Jürgen Voller wants to use it, of course, to travel through time. But his reason for traveling through time is, first of all, sh told but not shown. And secondly, doesn't make a lot of sense. 
But anyway, this film cuts back to, or rather, cuts forward to 1969, where an elderly Jones now lives in New York City. He has taught his last classes at Hunter College, and there is an, a another aspiring archaeologist by the name of Helena Shaw, who's played by Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who is not only an aspiring archaeologist like Indiana Jones, but she also happens to be Jones's god goddaughter. And Mangold identifies... I'm sorry. Helena, according to director James Mangold, is the catalyst of the film, which she sure, certainly is. And I think she actually works very well off of Harrison Ford, both in terms of her archaeological smarts as well as her knack for action. And the the two of them uh, travel all around the world, uh, meeting some of uh, Indiana Jones's confidants, including a an expert diver whose name is Ronaldo, who's played almost too briefly in this film by Antonio Banderas. And he is also... Not a villain, but definitely a good guy who would die for Indiana Jones. And there are other uh, characters in this film who appear, some new to the Indiana Jones franchise and some who are relatively familiar. And I think the ones that are, besides Indiana Jones, who are familiar almost are kind of too brief in this film. And some of their appearances in the film are a bit too short. And I do think that if Steven Spielberg had directed this film, they might have gotten a bit more screen time. But Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny does have some parts that are a bit draggy. They do almost rely a little bit too much on CGI. I thought CGI was used appropriately in the scenes that that took place in 1944, showing Indiana Jones as a younger man. But then there are some other scenes where there are... They're jumping out of planes, and the the CGI doesn't really live up to the cost of this movie. Plus, I'm also very skeptical about films that cost over $200 million to make because there are some films that cost $200 million where you could see the effort being put into them. A great example of this is Titanic. When Titanic was released in 1997, it did cost $200 million to make, not including marketing costs, but in the film, you could see those dollars being put to work. In Titanic, they not only built a ship, they built a ship that looked almost exactly like the real Titanic. The attention to detail was really uncanny, and I didn't really see that kind of attention to detail in this film, plus the intersection between action and science fiction in this film, I think took away from it. It wasn't as blaring a science fiction error as in Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, but it did seem to be a bit gimmicky. Plus, as I said, the actions of the antagonist in this film, in the grand scheme of things, when they try to go back in time, at the end of the day, didn't really make a ton of sense. And it seemed like... Mads Mikkelsen was hired not for his acting talent, of which he has a lot, but just because they wanted to have a smug German stereotype play a former Nazi or a Nazi that is in hiding. And I think his character could have been better utilized. The action scenes are pretty decent in this film, and I do count this film as being a notch above 
Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. In that sense, I thought some of the characters were well cast. Some were at least characterized in a little bit more of a bland kind of way. But overall, it's an improvement over Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. I did like it better than the Temple of Doom, but I did think there were parts of it that could have been better. They could have toned down on the CGI after the prologue that takes place in 1944. But Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, as flawed as it is as a movie, could have been worse. I do give Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny my rating of a checkout because I do think it is a serviceable chapter to the Indiana Jones franchise. Although it comes out a little bit later, it comes out quite a bit later after the aforementioned Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. And I think part of the reason why it's considered a box office bomb, unfortunately, is because people still remember how bad the last Indiana Jones movie was. And it's probably because that movie did as poorly as it did, at least critically, maybe not commercially, that drove some people away from seeing it. But Taking into account the comparisons between the Indiana Jones movies, I thought Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny was good, but it certainly could have been a lot better. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is No Hard Feelings. This is a comedy that was released in the theaters on June 23rd, 2023. And it is probably not as funny as it thinks it is, but I'll get into that a little bit later. This is the latest starring vehicle with Jennifer Lawrence in it. And unlike most of Jennifer Lawrence's films... This is a straight-out comedy. Now, Jennifer Lawrence has been in some films that could probably be described best as comedy dramas. And even if she herself wasn't particularly funny in these films, um, let me start over again. And even though these films did have funny moments, Jennifer Lawrence herself was pretty much not funny in the films. And I'm not saying she was trying to be funny and she wasn't. She just wasn't the focus of the comedic attention. Like, for example, the movie Silver Linings Playbook is probably the the film where Jennifer Lawrence was probably the most comic relief. But even then, there was an edge to her character which didn't exactly make her the clown of the movie. And she also had some funny moments in American Hustle which was directed by David O. Russell. Yeah, I I thought she was probably the funniest person in that film. And she was also in a comedy drama a couple of years ago, which I considered the worst film of 2021, which was Don't Look Up. She was not uh, the comic foil of that film either. I think she actually played it straight, and appropriately so. 
The film had a ton of problems. I didn't think her acting in the film was among the problems. But here, in No Hard Feelings, she is the comic focal point of this film. So the movie takes place in the town of Montauk, New York, which is a real town that has a lot of visitors come during the summer, and that's how they make most of their money. And Jennifer Lawrence plays a 32-year-old by the name of Maddie Barker, who is a townie who works as an Uber driver and as a part-time bartender. And even though she lives in the house that her mother inherited for her, she is facing bankruptcy after her car is repossessed as she owes property taxes on that same home that she inherited. And because her town is experiencing gentrification, the property taxes are going way up in her town. And desperate to avoid losing her home, as well as her need for getting a new car, she accepts an unusual Craigslist posting. And on this Craigslist posting, uh, there are a pair of helicopter parents known as the Beckers, excuse me, who are played by Laura Benanti and Matthew Broderick, who want a woman to come by and quote-unquote date their 19-year-old son who is going to college in Princeton. Their, their son, who is named Percy Barker, is played by Andrew Barth Fellman, who's probably the best actor in this film. And Percy has no experiences with girls, drinking, parties, or sex, and his parents hope to boost his confidence before he attends Princeton University in the fall. So they were probably wanting a woman who is maybe in her mid-20s at the oldest, but considering how good uh, Jennifer Lawrence looks in this film, the fact that she is 13 years older than the, the kid in this film is actually a bit of a moot point for uh, their parents. So this relationship is started out on a lie when Jennifer Lawrence goes into the animal shelter at which this 19-year-old is working. And the way she tries to be sexy is just kind of falls flat. And I, I guess in this cinematic universe, I guess we can assume that Jennifer Lawrence is not the prettiest woman in the cinematic universe. She has to try a little harder. But in reality, just one look at her, you can kind of tell all she has to do is say hello to you and you'll kind of be over the moon. But that's not the way this movie works. Instead, it kind of goes with cheap gags. Like, for example, Andrew Barth Feldman is nursing a, a dog that's probably considered a wiener. And Jennifer Lawrence comes in and says, may I touch your wiener? Ho, ho, ho. And the way this, that Jennifer Lawrence tries to be funny and tries to be sexy just kind of falls a little bit flat. Although this movie does take some risks. For example, there's a scene where Jennifer Lawrence and Andrew Barth Fellman go skinny dipping. Of course, Andrew Barth Fellman's character is very reluctant to do so. And as they're in the ocean naked, there are some drunken teenagers who try to take Jennifer Lawrence's stuff. And Jennifer Lawrence comes out in her birthday suit and fights these kids. That was probably the best part of the movie, although I was a bit skeptical about the purpose of the scene. And I was thinking to myself, did some 
asshole producer who is smoking a cigar trying to make this contractually obligated for Jennifer Lawrence? And is this exploitative? And, of course, Jennifer Lawrence looks great naked, but I did think that maybe there was something behind this. But according to reports, Jennifer Lawrence actually volunteered to do this without the aid of a body double. I'm still kind of skeptical, but the the scene was funny, uh, and it was probably the funniest scene in the film. But the rest of it felt very contrived, and there are parts in this movie where you could tell that Jennifer Lawrence is not particularly skilled as a comedic actress. She could have been worse, but at the same time, it seems like she was in a movie that was probably a better fit for a comedic actress like Amy Schumer, for example. And also, Amy Schumer would probably have to try a lot harder to be sexier than Jennifer Lawrence needs to try. But I'm just saying that this film didn't really do it for me. It, it had me chuckling a few times here and there. I do acknowledge that Andrew Barth Feldman was probably the best actor in this film. At first, I thought he might have been as antisocial as he was because maybe he's on the autism spectrum. But as it turns out, he's actually not. He's just a shy guy. And I thought that was a good development. But at the same time, I did think that Jennifer Lawrence in a lot of scenes tried way too hard to be funny. There's one scene where she tries to get up the stairs as she's in rollerblades. And while the scene could have been far more desperate for laughs, it also could have been a little bit truer to life if she had had the good sense to take the rollerblades off and just walk up the stairs. But this movie tries too hard to be funny in the sense that she's supposed to be a smart character, but she does things in the film that are really, really dumb. And dumb isn't necessarily funny. And I do think that there are scenes that could have been a lot less contrived and a lot funnier if they had been implemented. Uh, For example, yeah, the rollerblades I think could have been um, funnier if she actually got a hold of a car that was coming in and actually had that car drag her up the driveway. I think that could have been the basis for infinite comic possibilities. And also, there could have been other scenes that could have worked as well. It's a it's a serviceable comedy, but I think for a raunchy comedy, it could have gone for a lot more raunch and a lot more laughs than it ultimately did. And even though the film was rated R, I felt like it could have it, it played it a little too safe in some instances, with the exception of when Jennifer Lawrence is fighting those drunken teenagers in the buff. That was funny, and I wish the momentum of that film could have carried on with that. But No Hard Feelings gets my rating of a strikeout because of its lack of laughs in various scenes. And also, the title of the film, No Hard Feelings, feels like a stock title for a film. It feels like one of those titles that has been waiting around in some Hollywood writer's hard drive, you know, on a on a word document and they just picked one at random and used it for this film. And the, the title, no hard feelings doesn't really tie into the plot of this film. In addition to the fact that the plot of this film is very predictable. You know, the kid's going to find out, you know, there's going to be a falling out and you know, there's going to be some sort of resolution at the end. And 
the movie could have been a lot more clever than that. And it had the R rated, um, R rated freedom to be more clever than that. And it's a shame that it wasn't. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies that I have to review with you for this show, it's now time for me to get into my final segment, which is what's coming up next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released in theaters for the week of July 10th through July 14th. 2023. And while the 4th of July weekend has passed us, there is still no shortage of potential blockbusters that are coming out. And the biggest blockbuster of the year, or the most potential blockbuster of the year that's coming out, is the film Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. And you probably know that there's going to be a part two that's going to come out maybe next year. I really don't like it when there are films that come out that are kind of broken in half like this. But this uh, Mission Impossible film has a running time of over two hours, probably even two and a half hours. But I think with the star power of Tom Cruise himself, people would probably pay to see a five hour film. That is a sequel to the Mission Impossible films. And if you need some time to get caught up with the Mission Impossible movies, they are available for streaming on various platforms, including Netflix and Paramount+. And the only Mission Impossible film that I haven't seen besides Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 is Mission Impossible 3, which um, I heard was okay, but definitely the last few MI movies have been better received critically and maybe even commercially too. But this is the seventh Mission Impossible movie in which Tom Cruise has acted. And that is saying a lot considering that the first Mission Impossible movie came out 27 years ago. And Tom Cruise, even though he's 61, and this is monumentally unfair, still looks like he's in his 30s. Man, I know it's not genetics that makes him look this way, but it's still really unfair. But anyway, Tom Cruise returns as Ethan Hunt, and his IMF team must track down a dangerous weapon before it falls into the wrong hands. And there are various other actors who have been in previous Mission Impossible movies, like Rebecca Ferguson, Simon Pegg, Ving Rhames, and the list goes on. And... This is a film that I undoubtedly will see, and I will let you know what I think on next week's show. It is also, by the way, directed by Christopher McQuarrie, who has previously directed other Mission Impossible movies. And among the ones he's directed, he's directed the last one, Fallout, of which I had very, very low expectations going in. But it turned out actually to be one of the best Mission Impossible movies. He also directed Mission Impossible rogue nation, which was also surprisingly good. And that's it with, um, the mission impossible movies that he had previously directed. But the point is that I will see this film and I'll let you know what I think on, um, probably next week's show. 
if the electricity still holds up. But on July 14th, there are a number of other films that will probably be swept aside as a result of Mission Impossible, this Mission Impossible film. And one of the biggest films to come out in the coming week or next Friday is a film that's called Theater Camp. And this is about the eccentric staff of a rundown theater camp in upstate New York who must band together with the beloved founder's broy son to keep the camp afloat. The film stars such actors as Ben Platt, Molly Gordon, Noah Galvin, Jim Tatro, Caroline Aaron, and Ayo Edebiri, amongst others. So some familiar names there, but definitely no A-listers. But it looks like a film that could be the little film that could, and it's a film that I will likely see, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. But even if I don't see it, um, I can assure you that there are other films of which I need to play catch-up that I certainly will review for you for this show instead. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.